All right, we are in our uh, Asking for a Friend series and we've tackled a few different topics. We've got two weeks to go. If I'm 100% honest, I reckon we could probably do another 30 of these messages with all the different types of questions that have come in and then continue to be emailed and text and all the different stuff, which is so great. Um, But we have Christmas and so we're not going to do Asking for a Friend over Christmas and who knows, we might come back to it another time and keep diving on in. Today, however, we come to a heavy topic, a a message I'm calling Justice, Judgment and Jesus. Justice, Judgment and Jesus. So let's get straight into the questions and you'll quickly figure out where we're going. Number one, why doesn't the church talk about hell? Not just our church, but every church. Why don't we hear pastors preach on hell anymore? Dear Dave, we are reading the book of 1 Samuel so that we get the context of your teaching. This is from a previous series. The theology is difficult to understand. We have read it before and seems like it contradicts what we have formulated about God's character. Him being long-suffering, kind and just. I struggled with it even when I was in Bible college too, and I would rather not read it. Passages we are struggling with are chapter 15, verse 3, which is about the killing of all the Amalekites and every part of them. This seems contrary to how we understand God's loving kindness. What a great question, hey? Uh, Next, uh, heaven and hell. Thoughts? Good question. And last one, age-old question. How can a loving God condemn anyone to hell? Well, I don't know about you, but I think we need to pray. So let's do that before we try and tackle this topic. Lord, you are good, you are just, and you are judge. And I pray that we would not be confused, confounded, And especially turned off by that. But rather, we would see you for who you are. See your mercy, which precedes it. See your heart for humanity. And be so drawn to you that our lives would be transformed into true disciple makers and soul winners. We love you. We praise you. Please speak. I need you to speak. (laughs) Please speak. And please give us ears to hear it, eyes to see it, and hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name. All God's children said, Amen. Amen. So here's how we're going to tackle this. There's a thousand ways we could tackle it, but I'm going to throw six C's at you. We're going to look at God's character. We're going to look at our condition. We're going to look at the resultant conundrum. Everyone say conundrum. We're going to look at God's cure. We're going to look at the consequences of rejecting that cure. And finally, our conviction as a church around how we preach and what are the things that we speak into. Is that good? So you know where we're going, just so there's a bit of a backdrop. So when I get two and a half hours into this, you still know where we're going. I'm joking. Maybe. Um. I think the first thing we need to understand, particularly when we come to, and I'll I'll read 1 Samuel 15 in a minute, 
But the first thing we have to understand whenever we are dealing with these sorts of topics where we can take an element of Scripture and we can look at it and go, wow, that offends my cultural sensibilities. Wow, how can you possibly say that God is loving when that is in the Bible? So often we take a text out of context. And I know I talk about this all the time, but content without context will always lead to confusion. But content in context will bring clarity. And so when we look at these texts, we must, and when, there's no way we're going to look at all of them in the next however long I preach for, but we must have a headspace that there is always a context to the content you read. And so my goal and my heart today is to bring about some context, some parameters, a foundation on which all of these questions can be answered. So rather than me just giving you a fish and feeding you for a day for this exact moment, hopefully this will teach you to fish and feed you for a lifetime so that you can go out and you can use these principles to answer these big questions, all right? And I think a a simple way to look at this is, as I was prepping this, I was thinking about my mate who is a massive Hawthorne fan, right? And yeah, come on. And in, in 2008, he went, he, uh, he went to the grand final. We got tickets to the grand final, Hawthorne, Hawthorne versus Geelong. Geelong were the red hot favourites. There was no way Hawthorne were going to win this game. But as it got to about the fourth quarter, it became abundantly clear that Hawthorne were going to win. They were just on their run, kicking goals left, right and centre. My mate was there, spent a huge amount of money to be there. His wife is texting him saying, how's it going? He's trying to explain in a text that this is the greatest moment of his entire life. She's like, what about our wedding day? He's like, this far exceeds that, babe. All this sort of stuff. And then he's either, I can't get this across. So what he did is he took out his phone and he, he pressed record and he just held the phone aloft in the bleachers of the MCG. And just took this video of grown men weeping, (laughs) wearing yellow and brown (laughs) pyjamas, hugging each other, jumping up and down, kissing each other, screaming at the top of their lungs. And he sent it through to his wife. And because she loves him, she doesn't really love football, but she kind of got it. And I thought it was funny because he then came back into work and we're like, how was it? And us PE guys were like, that's amazing. Like we kind of get it. And then he went to some of the music crew who just don't care about football at all, don't understand it. And they're just like, why are they wearing pyjamas? <laughs> why, why are they kissing total strangers and jumping? Like for them, it's just this weird, they're like, I do not understand why a bunch of dudes wearing colours, kicking a leather air conveyance through a couple of sticks would cause this response. (laughs) But when you have context and you understand that for those 100,000 people in the MCG, it's not just a bunch of guys wearing pyjamas, kicking a leather air conveyance through some sticks. It's actually a part of their very identity that they are so deeply connected. It's not just a game. This is a way of life. And their success is my success. Their failure is my failure. Their struggles for 20 years or whatever it was without a premiership 
affects me deeply because it's my struggle. So when the ball starts going through the sticks, they're like, this is amazing because it's, it's connected to them. And so when you understand the context that it's not just a game, but it's identity and it's a very fabric of their being, then all of a sudden the response makes sense. And the same is true when we're tackling difficult topics of Scripture, that when we have context and we understand God's heart for humanity and that all of these responses, they're not, He's not just an angry God, like judging people because He is annoyed about something. Like I get angry because I'm A2 doesn't go into A3 when I'm putting Ikea together. And my response is irrational. I'm yelling at the kids because they walked through the room. But it's like, it's, God's not irrational like that. You know what I mean. Some of you have tried to put Ikea furniture together when the drawing's like that big. You're like, for goodness sakes, give me proper instructions, logical thinkers. But in context, like God's not irrational. Every decision he makes has context to it. And when we understand the context, when we realise that God's heart is so for humanity, we realise that he has gone to great lengths to make humanity one with him. And then when we see the response of those who would reject his mercy and his glory and all that he has done, then all of a sudden it doesn't come across as a rational, malevolent, you know, bitter, angry God. No, it comes across as totally, not just reasonable, but right. Context brings clarity. And so that's the goal today is just to give a fraction of context. So number one, when we address these questions about God and hell and judgment and justice, number one, we always begin with God's character. Every conversation must, 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 must begin with God's character. What do we know about God's character? Firstly, he is good. He is good. Guess what? God loves the Amalekites more than we do. God loves the broken person more than we do. God loves the person in Afghanistan more than we do. God loves, keep going, God loves humanity more than we do. And when we come along and say, how could God possibly, what we're saying is I think I love humanity more than you do. And it's believing a lie. And we're going to get to that in just a second. God is good. Secondly, a part of his goodness is that God is holy. It's his holiness. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. It means to be untouchable. It means to be perfect, pure, over and above, beyond anything else. Like God is holy. And a part of God's goodness is that holiness. It's his very nature of who he is. And also God is love. So love loves unto purity. Because love is a part of the nature of holiness. Love is not just universal acceptance of all things. That is not the case with love. All right? Love is, a ve- love is God. That is who he is. And so when we, underst- when we look at God's 
interaction with humanity and interaction with the world, we understand what love actually is. You know? And we, we have problems with these questions because in Western culture, we're in this middle to upper class Western society that really has rejected the idea of no. We live a very privileged life. And so we have problems with things like judgment and justice because we think, oh, you can't do that. That's unkind. But if you talk to someone who grew up in Cambodia when Pol Pot was just like murdering people left, right and centre, and you brought that idea that love equals no, like is the absence of judgment, they would say, what the heck are you talking about? Of course love involves judgment. You can't have love without it. How could a loving God allow such atrocity if he is not going to bring judgment upon the wickedness of the earth? And it's only really Western society that has gone down this line. Every other culture that has experienced deep grief and deep pain and deep tragedy will all agree that love includes judgment. It must. And so when we look at God's character, we see that He is love, we see that He is holy, and we see that He is just. Because a just God, love requires justice. And you can't have justice without a judge. And not just any old judge, a holy judge. Because a holy judge is above reproach. And a holy judge is true, is loving, is kind, is merciful. All of these things. These are a part of God's nature. God is before all things. We sung about it. Yeah, he is the first and the last. He is outside of creation. That means God is true. Creatures understand right and wrong and truth based on there has to be an external authority, ultimately the creator who tells the creature what is right and wrong. The creator is the only one with the authority to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is true. Only the creator can do that. That's why we call it an author. An author gets to determine the meaning of a text that they write, yes? Nobody else, it's the author who does it. The artist gets to determine the meaning of a painting because they're the one who produced it. And we can say, well, I think this and I think this and I think this, but ultimately it lies with the author and the artist. The same is true in creation. God created, therefore he is true. Our understanding of truth, therefore, must come from what he, as the external author of creation, determines what is true, determines what is right, and determines what is wrong. How are we going with some Doctrine 101 at Hills Baptist Church on a nice warm summer's morning? Friends, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's his character. Isaiah 61.8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery <clears throat> and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Psalm 89.14. Righteousness and justice, righteousness being this picture of holiness, are the foundation of your throne. Isn't that an interesting image? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It doesn't say righteousness and love. It doesn't say righteousness. It doesn't even say forgiveness. It says righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
but love is included in righteousness. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Friends, this is who God is. This is his nature. This is his character. And so all conversation begins right there. And we mustn't, we mustn't, 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 if God says this is happening, if God says this is like judgment is necessary on the earth, we mustn't say that we know better than him. Because that is putting ourselves as Lord and saying, you are God, but you are subject to my Godship. And we're going to get there in a minute, but that is a very, very dangerous thing for human beings to do. No, no, our job is to come under his Lordship and then seek to understand it as to why he does. Friends, in Revelation 6, the cry goes up from heaven. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There is a longing for a holy, loving God to bring justice to a broken world. Number one, that's God's character. Number two, let's talk about our condition. So when we're looking at this idea of judgment, first, God's character, he's good. Secondly, our condition, not so good. I was in the car with Bailey the other day and my, my son Bailey is a beautiful, deep thinking young man. And um, we're driving along and I'm going to Kmart, Bailey's sitting in the back and he just says, Dad, why is everything not free? Because he wanted to buy something from Kmart and he didn't have enough money. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a... That's a good question. I'm thinking, how the heck do I explain economics to a 10-year-old? So I start talking and he goes, no, 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 Dad, you're not hearing me. (laughs) You're not hearing me. Why is everything not free? He goes, Dad, if everybody just did their work and gave the result of their work to everybody else, no one would have to pay for anything, no one would miss out on anything, and everyone would have enough. And I was like, I was like, preach. <laughs> Might get you up here, champ. It's like, that's really good. Sounds an awful lot like Acts 2, when they sold all their possessions and property and gave to anyone who had need. Said, well, that is probably the kingdom of God that you're describing, mate. And he goes, so why don't we do it? Why doesn't everyone just do it right now? And we'd see the kingdom of God on earth. I was like, ah, that I can answer. (laughs) Because someone will take more than their share. And as soon as one person takes more than what they need, someone else will take more than what they need because they're afraid that they might miss out. And when they take more than what they need and all of a sudden the toilet paper's down to two or three rolls... And the can of beans are gone because someone else wants to take more than what they need because everyone's worried and stressed and fretting that I won't have enough. I have a friend, she's a pastor in this coronavirus pandemic. She had a roll of like the thing of toilet paper, 36 rolls on her trolley with three sick kids that she's navigating. She's walking across the road to her car. Some dude ran up, grabbed the toilet paper and bolted. And she was just left like in a moment crying. <laughs> she texts, she goes, you won't believe what happened. 
Like that's the human condition. And the result is that what will happen is we'll have all these people who have more than what they need and you have all these people who don't have anywhere near enough and the world's broken. So what we decided to do, Bailey, was we decided to put currency in place so everyone could do exactly the same thing. Human condition, sinful. It all comes from the garden. Genesis 3, the human condition is that we are self-serving. And as much as we like to think we're not and we can try, we can listen to self-help, even when we get filled with Holy Spirit and we long need to serve Christ, there is constantly in this life, while we're in the flesh, something that desires to be self over saviour. And this is the human condition. We are sinful. We call it theologically original sin. That the moment that Eve listened to the lie, listened to the lie of the serpent, and the serpent said, you could be like God. She forgot the fact she was already made in his image. She already was like God. Created in beautiful, perfect harmony and unity with a holy God. And she was like, oh, but I could have more. I'm going to take it. And it became a seed that exists at the heart of every human being. And so what we see is sinful humanity and holy God. And then we have a conundrum. How good's a conundrum? (laughs) We have a conundrum. And the reason we have a conundrum is because holiness, set apart, perfect, spotless, longs to dwell with humanity. Humanity, sinful, unholy, impure, longs to serve self. And so the holy God who longs to have intimacy with a self-serving humanity, there's a problem. Because if holiness touches unholiness, if what is pure touches what is impure, one of two things has to happen. Either, like... You know, picture a glass of water with a glass of poison. That pure water, the moment the poison touches the water, what happens to the water? It's poisonous. So purity, impurity, impurity will always taint purity, except if purity is God, the one who created all things and sits above all things and is subject to no one. Because in that case, the purity of God, which cannot be transformed, He is who He is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He is God. His nature is unchanging. If He was to touch that which is, or come into union with that which was impure, instead of Him changing, we would be consumed. Our sinful nature would be completely burnt up By His holiness. This is why the Bible says God is a consuming fire. Because His glory and His goodness and His majesty is too much. We must be transformed in order to have union with God. And God, that is His intention. That is the whole purpose of creation. That is what the whole story of the Bible is about. 
is about God pursuing humanity. From the garden to Abraham, His promise to Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations. Guess what, Abraham? I'm coming for everybody. I want union with everybody. Even with Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve sin, that perfection is tainted. And what does God do? He clothes them in what? Animal skins, symbolising sacrifice. You see, the moment we sin, the moment there was this divide, God straight away, prophetically speaking into what He was always going to do because Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the creation of the world. Thank you, Laura, for declaring that earlier. He's saying, guess what? I'm coming. And there's going to be a sacrifice because something has to be consumed. Sin has to be consumed. This nature must die in order for you to have union with me. And the reason I created was to have union with you. That's the truth. That's who I am. I want you and I'm coming for you. So now we have this conundrum. What are we gonna do? Sacrifice. And then you see this whole system all through the Old Testament. How are you going, Bible students? Where it's sacrificial system. Tabernacle, which means dwelling place presence of God. God comes to dwell with His people in order to have that union and dwelling with God. What needs to happen? Sacrifice. There needs to be a punishment for that sin, a judgment for that sin. Justice must be done so that our sin could be, the word is atoned, which means covered or removed for, so that we could have this union with God. The problem is an animal can't do it. It happens once and then we stuff up again. Happens again, we stuff up again. Constant cycle. But all of it, it wasn't like God went, oh, crikey, that didn't work. What am I gonna do now? No, it's all prophetic. It's all speaking to this moment of this is how I'm gonna solve the problem. There will be judgment because I am just and I am good and sin must die. It has to die because I'm holy and I want the world to walk in my holiness. And because of that, I will pour out wrath upon everything that would lead people out of my holiness because that's why I created. And so it's coming, but guess what? It's gonna come upon me. Whoa! It's prophesied when... He split the animal pieces and walked through with Abraham. Listen to Simon Ermel's message from about a year ago. That he will bear the brunt, that the great judge of heaven would cast the judgment against sin and all wickedness and he would lay down the gavel and then the moment he cast that judgment, he would hop down from his judge's place and he'd push us out the way and he'd say, I've got it. That's the cure. That God Himself would pour out His judgment upon Himself in the person of Jesus Christ for a sinful humanity. Why? So that we could have union with Him because that is what it's all about. God longs to dwell with humanity. And so he brings the cure of himself and he pours out his wrath, judgment, 
once and for all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Last week, Sammy preached a cracking message on grace versus works. Friends, this is the cure. Grace upon grace, knowing we can't make it. So God judges humanity by consuming the sun so that we would not be consumed by our sin. That's the context by which we broach these passages. All right? The picture of history, like salvation history, that is the context which then leads us to this question well, what about hell? What's with hell? Is that fair? How can a loving God send anyone to hell? What about destroying the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15? where God instructs Israel to go and obliterate all of them. And the the classic atheist response is, that's genocide. How can you possibly have a loving God who lives out genocide? Well, there's a couple of things here that we need to see. Here's the thing. When we look at this, let's go there. Let's read 1 Samuel 15, hey? Just so you know I'm not lying. From verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women and children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And people stop there and go, oh my gosh genocidal, horrific, horrible God can't exist. Keep reading. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them to Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt, so the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Two things. Mercy precedes judgment. Why did Saul set up an ambush? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there is a clear command from God that whenever Israel engages in war, they must set up an ambush and they must present a peace treaty to the nation that they are coming against. And that peace treaty says to the nation, if you don't want to go to war, make peace with us, become subject to us, and we won't do this. Saul would have done exactly that. He would have said, come subject to us, and no one has to die. He then sends word to the Kenites. Who are the Kenites? The Kenites are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And the Kenites had been, obviously, this faithful people, had been kind to Israel. So word goes to the Kenites and says, hey, We don't want to harm you. You are clearly living in deep relationship with the Amalekites. It's time to get out. So there's an opportunity for the Kenites to go. Now, who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. Now, what did Esau do? Esau was the rightful descendant of the birthright. 
He was the one who was supposed to walk in the favour and blessing of God, but he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He preferred the temporal over the eternal. He preferred the immediate self-centred need over the eternal God-ordained blessing. And so the descendants of Esau are walking in the sin of their father. And what we see in now the Amalekites is they constantly came against Israel throughout Israel's history. And even when Israel was weak in their very early days in the desert, the Amalekites attacked them. After God had specifically said, do not touch or go to war with the Amalekites because they are family. And the Amalekites came again. Who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are a biblical picture of a people who reject the Lordship of God and assume the Lordship of self. And all through history, they're like, no, 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 no. We are, this is our identity. This is us in the yellow and brown pyjamas. This is who we are. We are adversaries of God. And we will not follow, obey, obey or bow to Him. So when Israel comes and they would have offered this peace treaty, the Amalekites had every opportunity to become a Kenite. Every opportunity to change their identity and say, no, actually, I'm not an adversary of this this God who has already brought an opportunity for mercy. That's not who I am. I'm going to become a Kenite who is a friend of God and I'm going to walk in the blessing of that friendship. Instead, those who stay, and maybe some did, I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us, but those who chose to stay made a deliberate decision to be an adversary of God. Friends, this is, this is a prophetic word again about the whole of Scripture, about what happens to people who reject the Lordship of Christ and say, I am my own God. I will make my own decisions. I don't need you. I don't need your mercy. I don't need your grace. I don't need your favour. I don't need your blessing. I'm choosing me now and forever. I want the bowl of soup, not the blessing of heaven. And so there's a picture for all of us as to why judgment comes. It is not because God is a genocidal maniac. It is because He is holy and loving and good. And all who would reject His Lordship will be consumed by His holiness. But the opportunity is that it is the great desire of His heart. What more could He do? What more can I do? Is He saying, I've given you everything. We see in the book of Luke in the 16th chapter, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You know the story? Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus, the poor beggar who sits at the gate of the rich man dressed in purple and linen. And there's this story where they both die. The rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus is now seated with Father Abraham in the heavens. And the rich man starts to say, hey, send Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger and in the waters of heaven and cool my tongue because I'm in torment here. And he goes on and Abraham's like, no, there's a chasm between you. It's not going to be. He goes, well, go and tell my friends just so they don't have to do it. He goes, no, there's the prophets and all these things. It's this really interesting picture that Jesus paints. But I asked myself the question of why does Jesus, this is the only parable where Jesus gives someone a name. There's the rich man and there's Lazarus. Who was Lazarus to Jesus? 
Come on, somebody. Who was Lazarus to Jesus? His friend. Lazarus with his friend. He's giving a name that everyone in the hearing would understand. This guy is a friend of mine. And he's saying, this guy is known. The difference between the rich man and Lazarus is that Lazarus was known and the rich man was not. The rich man had everything he needed on earth, but he set himself up as Lord. Lazarus had nothing on earth, but he subjected himself to God's lordship. And so at the end of time, the one who had bowed the knee to the God of heaven, the holy God, the loving God, the just God, he received justice which was you are in Christ, you are known by me and because you're known, you get to walk in the blessing of heaven. But the rich man, even in Hades, in that story, never once does he ask to get out. All he asks for is to Lazarus to come in. And he's still barking commands. He's still saying, you need to do this. You need to do this. What is it a picture of? It's a picture of self-centred lordship. It's the picture of, again, someone who has believed a lie that he is God, that his ways are the highest ways and has rejected the truth that he is not. And the penalty and the punishment for rejecting truth is that life apart from God. Now let's talk about what a life apart from God looks like. If God is good, merciful, just, righteous, Loving, light, peace, joy. I don't know if I've already said kindness. We can just keep on going. If that is who God is and we say, I don't want any of it and we are eternal beings because we have a soul and our soul will dwell forever and forever I've rejected that as Lord, what am I living in? The absence of Love, picture a life with zero love. Just that, where there is no love anywhere. Picture a life of utter, complete darkness. You ever walked into a pitch black room? I'm an adult and I still stress. (laughs) Imagine living that for eternity. Picture a life of no kindness, no goodness. Everything that God is, is gone. I'd say that that's hell. I said to a lecturer years ago, I was troubled by the flames, the eternal flames that people are going to... I'm like, that just doesn't seem like God. What's that torment? He goes, well, I think it's safe to say that the flames are metaphorical, Dave. And I went, oh, thank God. And he goes, for something much, much worse. (laughs) For an eternity without God. And God hasn't sent anybody there. God's heart from creation is to dwell with humanity. That is his pursuit. That is his goal. That place is reserved for the devil and his angels. That's what he created that place for apart from him, to punish the devil and the angels. And yet humanity, though covered by the blood of Christ, though though forgiven, will reject the lordship of Jesus and therefore walk in that place because they've said no to the one who came for them. Romans 1 puts it in a very powerful way, I think. 
I'm going to read from verse 18. I'll just, I'll just keep reading. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The truth that God is Lord, not me. Since what they may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So God is not, he's not hiding. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. So they knew him. You c- you're not my Lord. I'm my Lord. And God's a gentleman. All gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things, namely self rather than the creator who is forever praised. Then he goes on and he starts to talk about the outcome, the plumb line, what this looks like in the future. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, disobey parents, have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Does that sound like hell to you? Sounds like hell to me. Utter, complete evil. Friends, there is a consequence for rejecting the cure. Hebrews 2. Let's go there too. Hebrews 2 says, if I can manage to keep my Bible together. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, so that we don't believe the lie. For since the message spoken through angels was blinding and every violation and disobedience received a just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And then on it goes. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Friends, band, you can come up and I'm going to close. Heaven and hell are real. Heaven is with God in perfect goodness. Hell is the absence of God in perfect not goodness. Perfect, I say that deliberately, perfect not goodness. We haven't seen that on the earth. We've caught glimpses of it. Just look back through human history where someone, a leader, has 
intentionally just pushed God to the very, very fringes of society and the devastation and destruction that we see. Hell will be so much worse. The cure is Christ for all humanity. Bible says he desires that none would be lost, that all would be saved. My question is, one, are you? Two, do you care about those who are not? Do we care? It's one thing to ask these questions. What about hell? It's an entirely other thing to have friends and family and people we love and care for who are rejecting the Lordship of Christ. It's different to say Jesus is a Saviour and Jesus is Lord. They're very different things to acknowledge a Saviour and to surrender to Lordship. And the church is supposed to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ because of His salvific work. May we surrender to the King. May we live in the surety of His sacrifice for us. The surety of grace, as we heard about last week. The surety of His finished work over us. And this is our conviction. This is why we preach Christ and Christ crucified. Yes, Jesus talked about hell a lot. Yes, I don't talk about hell very much, except for today, because you asked the question. It's your fault. But you look at the early church, they preach Christ and Christ crucified and Christ glorified. That's what they preached. Because every single time someone catches a glimpse of God's glory all through Scripture, they fall down very acutely aware of their brokenness. Isaiah, woe is me. Jeremiah, woe is me. Saul, woe is me. Then he becomes Paul. John, ah! As though he's dead. This is what happens when we encounter the glory and magnificence of God. So we could focus on the consequence or we could focus on the cure. Now we don't just give a lovey-dovey, God loves you because that therefore just takes away from this. No, we have to say, God is a consuming fire. He is glorious and mighty and wonderful and incredible. And He's come for you. And you can't stand in that presence, but by a cross. And so that's what we preach, the cross of Jesus Christ, the God of heaven, the judge of heaven, who gave His life and poured out His blood so that sinners could not just be saved, but seated with Christ on high. That's what we're called to do. That's what the church is called to do. So don't be flustered and confounded by these questions. Go to the character of God, go to the cross of Christ and boldly declare this is who He is. Can you honestly stand in that? The answer is no, but by the cross. And all of us should find ourselves in this posture regularly. Because this is a posture of surrender. We're far too dignified. We should be in this posture saying, I am yours. All of me is all of yours. Have your way. Do what you will. Change my life. Thank you for making me 
the righteousness of God in Christ by no work of my own, purely by your work. Now let me be your vessel to a broken world, declaring that same truth. And so we, I just have a conviction this morning and thank you for allowing me the time because the 8.30, I didn't have time to do this properly. But I have a conviction this morning that there's many here who just need to come back to the Lordship of Christ. And whether it's just reaffirming or whether it is maybe even for the first time, saying, I've seen you as Saviour, now I'm surrendering as Lord. And I want us to move these chairs in a second and create some space. And I want us to come. And some of you, I realise the knees aren't strong and the floor is hard, so maybe you can just stand. But all those who are physically able, bow your knee. Those who are not physically able, God sees your heart, the bowing of the heart. But let's come and we're going to sing. Can we actually sing Alpha and Omega to start with again and then flow into that next one? Yeah, let's do that. And let's declare that truth, that He is Alpha and Omega. Amen? Let's do it. Let's stand to our feet. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your perfect, spotless sacrifice. We thank you that you've redeemed us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for big questions that are in people's hearts. And my prayer today is that just one or two things that I've said would land, that no one would leave here confused. Pray that everybody would leave here with a picture of Christ as Lord and an understanding that I am not worthy, but that He has made me worthy. So therefore I bow. Please, Lord, solidify Your Word in our hearts. Thank You for Your mercy. You are Lord. You are Lord of this house. You are Lord of all. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.